Hi, I'm Ella Frasnick and welcome to the Unequal Truths podcast, where we hear from successful professionals currently working in the market research industry who, like me, entered from low-income backgrounds. Listen in as guests share their personal journeys in market research and we explore what we can all learn from their experiences to help our industry become more inclusive. Okay, so today we are speaking to C.A. Francis. Uh, he is a young, ambitious fireball of energy and enthusiasm <laughs> with apparently an ironically laid-back and lazy tone of voice. We'll hear that uh, today during the podcast. <laughs> um, and so, Theo, welcome. So you are owner and managing director of the very new guinea pig fieldwork, and you're also director of CORE, or the Colour of Research, which is a non-profit organisation championing the cause of racial inclusion in the market research industry. And Theo's come a long way in a short amount of time, and he says from humble beginnings. So I think initially you started at IndieField, you're in the recruitment side of the business, and that was in 2015, and you rose quite quickly there, you know, starting as a recruiter and then moving up to supervisor, project manager, sales manager, Wow, lots of manager um, <laughs> manager uh, <laughs> lists in your in your CV and many more experiences in between. Before I think you were headhunted by Central Fieldwork in 2019, and then taken the plunge and launched your own your own business, which is Guinea Pig. So that's really exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. And it says here on your bio that that those who've worked with you say you're brilliant which which I'm sure is true it says you're still a baby that struggles with imposter syndrome daily and you still feel you have a lot to learn well I'm sure you're not the only one and also <laughs> that's it that's something we'll pick up on a bit later in the conversation so welcome to you thank you thank you glad to be here thanks for <laughs> inviting me no problem I'm really pleased you you agreed to chat so just to start off we're just going to have a quick fire round of questions they're a bit silly and hopefully Hopefully they'll just warm us up a little bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so okay. the sure, first is, uh, so what is your favourite colour? Black. Your star sign? Leo. Your favourite animal? A lion. Favourite food? Oh, I really love food. Um, uh, chicken. What superpower would you like if you could have one? Oh, I would go for, yeah, I used to say like, to fly or to, to have super strength, but I think I'd like to read mine. To read mine. Oh, interesting. Okay. And who would you want to play you in a movie of your life? Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> Denzel Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. I like it. Okay, cool. Well, uh, hopefully that's uh, helped us warm up a little bit and our guests hear a little bit more about you. So I guess the first thing to do would be for you to kind of describe your background and particularly what about it made you feel different when you entered the market research industry? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my background, I'm, I'm a British male. I'm, I'm from mixed heritage. So my, my dad's Jamaican, my mum's English. My, I'm pretty different to, to my market research peers in that I'm just, I don't come from a completely different walk of life. Like, my childhood was quite a roller coaster of, um, you know, ups and downs in terms of family's income and the neighborhoods that I grew up in. Like, when I was born, there was, you know, a fair amount of income coming in. So I was born in Hampstead. We've got a flat in North Finchley, which is another quite, you know, middle class neighborhood. So, like, from, 
from my early years in primary school and all that, I grew up in quite a middle class area with you know middle class kids, and I felt like I was one of them, even if the family didn't have the same sort of wealth. But yeah, they they broke up. Uh, it was quite a big breakup because we ended up my mum and my my sister and I we ended up moving to Manchester for a year and then moving over to Gibraltar for another year. And then, um, you know, living in Gibraltar is quite expensive, so we ended up crossing the border over to La Linea, which is a small Spanish town, and I went to a school over there, and no one spoke any English, so I didn't really learn anything there. <laughs> but then after that, I, I moved back to London to live with my dad, and after a short time living at my nan, the government passed up in a council estate in Tottenham. So, uh, yeah, that was a bit of a culture shock because obviously I'm this, you know, finchley boy, this, this, you know, soft finchley boy and all of a sudden I'm in, um, you know, this, this rough ghetto neighborhood. But, yeah, to be honest, I look back at it, it was a lot of fun, you know, playing out with the project, which was, you know, roaming around the neighborhood and getting into trouble. Those were some fun and exciting times, but yeah, I needed to toughen up quite quickly. Yeah, I spent my teenage years in Tottenham, went to secondary school, ended up getting kicked out of school in year 11, so I didn't do any GCSEs, I went to a unit, so they didn't have any of the facilities to, to do GCSEs and all that, so didn't get any further education, just gave myself a pretty you know, rubbish start to life, and then, um, yeah, from, from there I just got going with, with life, really. So, yeah, my upbringing difference uh, is, you know, quite severe compared to the other peers in market research and it's quite a stark contrast like the majority of the people that I know in research come from you know middle class families they all went to uni there's some level of wealth there in the family so I'm pretty much the the antithesis of that. Yeah wow what a fascinating thanks for sharing and so I mean is that a difference that you know to, and I know that you and I have had conversations before about this but is it a difference that was sort of obvious to you as soon as you joined the industry? Well, yeah, yeah, like in the indie field, there was a few, uh, I couldn't really say there was anyone there who had sort of as, as rough enough coming as I did, but I just noticed that, you know, in the industry in general, you're talking to clients and you're talking to people, these are all, you know, well-spoken, Oxford-educated people, and I did feel a little bit like, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not meant to be here. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can empathize with that. And so, and tell me how you came to work in market research specifically, and a bit about that journey. Yeah, sure. I mean, from um, from leaving from from ending the school, I, I did like various different jobs. I started working in the nightclub scene, did some different kind of sales jobs. I worked in charity fundraising for a little while. You know those guys on the street with the clipboards that stopped you and guilt tripped you into donating. I've, I've always been into music ever since I was a teenager, so I, I, I write and produce hip-hop. I steer away from the, the gangster stuff. It's all more like politics and race and discrimination. Just before I got into research, I produced an album and just over a year, like standing in Oxford Street and playing the music to people and selling CDs, I sold like two and a half thousand copies. Wow. Uh, that's impressive. Yeah. Uh, Ten pound a pop, it was pretty good. I thought like I was, you know, this is it. I was gonna, I was gonna blow right up, but it didn't really work out. You know, it's, it's not that 
you know, month by month, you wouldn't know what you was going to end up with. I was married at the time, so I'm still married at the time. I'm talking about. My daughter was a toddler, so, you know, my wife and I, we just had a pretty tough discussion, and she basically said, you know, as much as you're passionate about this thing, we need some financial stability. You need to at least find something you can do part-time on the side that will make sure we can, you know, pay the bills. So, yeah, I looked at Gumtree, saw an advert for part-time telephone interviews, and it was down the road from where we were living at the time. So I was like, oh, my God, that's perfect. So I gave them a call. And they were like, yeah, you know, we've got some availability. When can you do? So I was like, well, how about right now? Put <laughs> <laughs> them back a little bit. So I quickly printed out a CV, you know, sort of lied about education, so that I've been to uni and all of this stuff, which you know, I think lots of people in my circumstances have to do. But they didn't actually even look at the CV though. When I when I walked in, it was really quite surreal. They were just like, okay, yeah, so this is the project. Tell me a little bit about it, and here's your desk, here's your phone. Let's see what you can do. Yeah, I just. I just got stuck in. Really. I remember the first project I worked on, it was like cold calling and trying to schedule telephone interviews with lawyers. It was really a horrible project. I didn't get anywhere with it. I was like getting gatekeeper after gatekeeper telling me, you know, no thanks, send an email, by. I spent about an hour and a half plowing away the list and, until, you know, I just thought, wow, maybe I'm not, I'm just not good at this. But I spoke to the project manager and I said, look, I'm really sorry. Can't seem to get any. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And she just said, don't worry. It's a really tough project. Try this one. She gave me a consumer study. Can't remember exactly what it was, but I just remember, you know, I really wanted to prove to them that, well, yeah, you know, I, I can actually do this. I just got stuck in and I smashed it right out of the park. Like I think I got like 10 or 12 interviews that day. So from that, they were like, okay, he's pretty good. And they started booking me regularly to, to come in as a, as a temp, just doing the phone call. And then one of the project managers was leaving, so there was a job vacancy going. So one of the other temps that I've been working with said, hey, you know, why don't you go for it? And I had that imposter syndrome going again. I was like, mm. are you going to want me? You know, I don't know. I don't really know anything about this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, mate, you know, you're brilliant. I like, just go for it. So um, yeah, I spoke to the boss. I was just like, hey, you know, I see there's a vacancy going. don't really know about anything about market research, but I'm a fast learner and I'm interested. Like, would you consider taking me on? And, you know, they, they said, yeah. And that's how I got into it. I started as a PM, did a bit of the recruitment and, you know, other bits and bobs. And they moved me over to more client services roles, sales, and went into international. The rest is history from there, I guess. So talk to me more about uh, the imposter syndrome that you, that keeps coming up for you. And also <laughs> a bit more about this lying on the CV. And, and did you still have, keep the lies on your CV when you applied for, for the project manager job? Or were you feeling able to not do that anymore? Well, I didn't, I didn't give them a CV when I applied for the project manager job. They'd already seen me. So it was just like, hey, you've seen me in here. You've seen what I can do. Do you, want to, do you want to give me a chance? And they said, yeah, didn't have to have any CV. But, I mean, lying on the CV, I, I'll admit, it's not, it's not, I'm not proud of it, but at the end of the day, you know, you can't go on a CV and say, yeah, I got expelled from school in year 11 because I was a little shit, you know, <laughs> part of my language. So, but I think the people who come from where I come from and have had that sort of background have to do things like that if they're, they're going to try and get anywhere in life. Talking on the imposter syndrome, it's just a feeling of, you know, when you look around and you don't really see many people like you or you don't really hear any accents like you or you just feel like, you know, sooner or later they're going to realise that you're not meant to be here. It's, it's, it's a stupid 
stupid feeling, really, because you know it's never there's never really been the time. I think partly because I've got the sort of drive in me to you know chip on my shoulder to prove to everyone that I'm capable. But there hasn't really been a time when. My background has held me back, but yeah, you, you still have it in the back of your head. Mm. Um, people might view you differently. How does that impact you? I think that it, it works. It works as a driving force, really. It can it can sort of deter you a little bit. It can make you anxious. But I've always been the type of way where you know, even from from the fundraising days and from standing out on the street with my mixtapes and all of that, like I kind of drive on being uncomfortable because I know that the only way that you can grow is to go through that uncomfortability. So yeah, it affects me, but it doesn't hold me back because I push through it. But I know that a lot of other people, you know, I've got friends and family who have similar things, and um, it can it can hold people back. And so it's just not it's not nice to have. Yeah, and I guess how 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 much does it sort of crop up for you as well as you're going about? It sounds like obviously you can really successfully, you manage that really well and you're able to push through it. But how much of the time is it sort of there with you, like on your shoulder? You know, what? Like how much is not, it there? Not as much anymore. These days, I'll admit, it's, it's less and less. It's, I mean, almost non-existent now. Great. But definitely in, in the beginning of the career and coming up through the ranks, I did have this feeling of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm probably not good enough or they probably think this and that but you know mm-hmm. you grow out of it <laughs> yeah yeah and so how how would you sort of describe your your experience in the industry overall has it been easy or difficult to, to navigate like tell me about some of your key challenges or, or obstacles and and then maybe some of your key successes along the way I mean my experience in the industry thus far I have to say it's been pretty good if I'm being completely honest I mean I think that there have been obstacles I have come across people who have perhaps you know, underestimated me based on whether I look or whether I talk or, you know, I've had people using fancy words to describe simple things and I've had to just nod and pretend like, yeah, I know what you're talking about and then look it up afterwards. But, you know, those are all things that are drivers for me as I said. You know, the easiest way for you to get the best out of me is to underestimate or to try and belittle or patronize me. You now I've got that chip on my shoulder and I know that because, I know it's because of the history that I've, I've had and the upbringing, but when someone sends that sort of energy to more, towards me, I just smile, I, I talk softly, but I'm like, in, in my mind, I'm like, okay, you wait, I'll show you, I'll show you. That's yeah. interesting. And it's to what extent would you say your background has enabled you to in, in certain ways, you know, what? tell me about how it's helped. Well, yeah, it's, it's helped because I feel like I've got a, a level of hunger that some of my, my colleagues and, and people who haven't been through the, the type of things that I've been through just don't have, you know. Um, it sort of makes you really want to succeed. And, I mean, I'm not saying that you have to be from low income or you have to have had those sort of things in your life for you to have any sort of drive, but what's worked for me, really. Yeah, I think you can say that without taking away from anyone else who, who also has that, that kind of drive. And I think that's a, a really interesting example and it's something that I've sort of come across I would say a a fair amount when I do meet successful people from lower income backgrounds like we're talking about and I suppose another sort of area or or to to build on on what you said so far would you say you've been able to join and actively be in in this industry with a voice? Yeah I think honestly I mean the the industry overall is, is quite white middle class male so you know I as someone who I'm, I'm not middle class I'm, I'm from a different background 
uh, I've had to adapt in, in a way in order to get along, but I think that that's an experience that is normal for most people like me, and sort of racial, financial background. You have to sort of mask that, you know, you put on in order to, to be accepted as a professional, but I do try my best to be myself as much as possible. I mean, there's some level of filter, but, I, you know, I don't go around telling everyone, everyone exactly what I'm thinking all the time, <laughs> but um, do, I don't actively try to be something that I'm not either. I might polish it up a bit, but I think there's a lot said for just being yourself as well. I think in the beginning, I probably put up more of a facade, but I've learned that you know, people like doing business with other people, and they don't like doing business with robots. So, yeah, I let my bushy Afro ponytail grow out as big as it can, and <laughs> you know, I'll crack stupid little jokes at networking parties that I probably shouldn't say, and to myself, because my personality, and if I, if I needed to lose my personality in order to get along in the industry, then no, it's not an industry that I want to be working in. Mm. That means that you know, certain clients don't want to work with me because I don't portray that boring businessman image that they're used to working with, and that's totally fine by me. There's plenty of those people that they can, they can work with. There's plenty of them around. It sounds like that's maybe been a bit of a journey, like you've come to this place now, and I just wondered, you mentioned yeah. sort of the mask, and maybe you had more of that when you first entered. Do you have any sort of tangible examples, and even, you know, potentially there are certain things still that you might avoid doing, being, saying? I don't know. Is there any, any examples you could give us? Yeah, I mean, I, I used to adapt my voice a lot more and try to, to do, as, as my dad called it, the, the white boy Roy voice. You know, I think that that's something that I've definitely not done as much as recent. Because, again, I think it's more important just to be yourself. But, I mean, it's, it's funny, though, with, with, when we're talking about accents and, and, you know, sometimes it's not the content of what you're saying. Like, there's this, there's this series on Netflix called 100 Humans, and one of the experiments they did, they had this actor, this voice actress, she does all different accents, and they got, like, 25 people in each room. They did it four times, and she said the exact same thing. She was, like, promoting some product or service or something. But she did one in a very posh Oxford voice, and then she did one that was, you know, like a Southern American country voice. She did all different accents, and it was crazy how, when they asked the audience afterwards, like, oh, did you think she, she knew what she was talking about? Did she seem knowledgeable when it was the, the posh voice? And like, oh, yeah, I really liked her. She really knew what she was talking about. And then when it was the other voices, they're like, I don't need someone telling me this and that. And she, well, what makes her think she knows? And it was the same exact word, just a different in accent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do know that there, that does play a factor. I guess now I've just reached a point where uh, I just I just feel less less obligated to wear the mask. Yeah, and that's great. I'm really pleased for you about that because that that's hard work, right? Having to yeah. to to change yourself in in certain ways because you feel like yeah. like you have to. And it's not something that people who aren't from you know people who are middle class and did go to uni and do speak like that naturally. They don't ever have to to worry about putting on that facade. But, you know, they probably don't even notice that those of us who do have to do it are actually even doing it. But it is a struggle. Yeah. And do you have any, that's a really great example. Is is there any other kind of examples that you can think of like that? Not really. I mean, because, you know, you you have to filter yourself to some degree anyway. I think everyone has to filter themselves in business anyway. You don't go around just effing and jeffing and and being yourself completely. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of masking my background, I think... Because a lot of the work that I do is over the phone. You, you can't tell from, from my emails. I write really well. 
think over the phone, you might hear the accent. I've heard, I've, I've spoken to people and from, hello there, sir. They look at my LinkedIn profile and all of a sudden it's, hey, bro. I mean, that might not be, that mm-hmm. might be, they just want to be friendly, but, you know, they could also be that they see me and, and think, oh, okay, he's my bro now. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you don't know me from Adam, but suddenly I'm your bro. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good example. And I mean, this is a super difficult question. I don't expect you to have an answer necessarily, but I suppose obviously this podcast is focused on low income backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You've got two different mm-hmm. sort of very diverse factors happening at, at once. Yeah. Is it possible to separate those two experiences? Because I think it's interesting what you mentioned about being on the phone versus being seen, right? You can't, if you're, if someone sees you, straight away they can see you're not white can you distinguish between those two things like growing up with less money and entering the industry versus not being white and entering the industry do you think that you can distinguish at all between those things yeah i do think because you know you could you could be non-white but very rich and middle class and have gone to uni and be posh and have all the posh words and I think that's very different to growing up in Tottenham and naturally speaking it's a bit of a slang but you know it's the two are very intertwined in a lot of cases but you're right there there is also a lack of inclusion for people who are just from from lower income might have not have had the same sort of education or come from the same sort of places. Yeah, so so there is distinctions between those two things. And I suppose, do you have any example of how those sort of intersect for you? And again, I know it's a difficult question. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I kind of get hit with the double whammy because I'm, I'm brown and I'm common. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know, to be honest, I don't think about it too much anymore just because... I just try to never let it get in my way. As I, say, I like I like people to underestimate me, and I like people to to listen to my common voice and say, "Oh, he probably doesn't know what he's talking about," and mm-hmm. I can prove them wrong, and then they'll they'll soon learn. You know, that's come up a few times, and I just wondered how common that experience is for you in in your sort of everyday work life. How often you're coming up up against that? How often you're getting that motivation, right? Yeah, I, I guess it's, it's more so. It used to be more so than it is now. I think now the people that I work with mainly they they've worked with me for years. They know me, so I don't really have that problem. But yeah, previously I remember being a project manager, and I mean project managers get a lot of stick anyway from from clients, but. And that client's just talking to me like, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. And then someone else comes on the phone and talks all nice and posh and all of a sudden they're, they're being nice. You know, so I, don't, I don't know. But it's, it's always a thing, isn't it? It's like it's so under the under the current that you always wonder, is it just me? Am I being paranoid or is, is this actually happening? For sure. And I guess, has it happened enough for you to know that it's not just paranoia <laughs> in this industry? Well, there's enough other people who have told me that they have the same experience that it makes me think, okay, it's not just me. Yeah. We can't all be wrong. Yeah, and I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> I think it's you know <laughs> more of a sort of endemic structural issue. And I think that's interesting, isn't it? Because that yeah. sort of leads us nicely to my next question, which is around blind spots that you think people from a less diverse background in this industry might miss 
or not consider or not think about? I think that, you know, there's, there's different aspects to it, I suppose. I think that, you know, employers who put out job adverts uh, looking for people with X amount of experience and X amount of degrees. When we're talking about, like, entry-level jobs, but I think they're probably missing a trick. Because, you know, had that been the case at Indyfield, I would never have entered the industry. And I, I plan to contribute a lot to this industry before I'm gone. So I'm sure there's a lot more diverse talent out there that are being overlooked because they might not have grown up in the same archetypal way. I think that, you know, I don't know, I'm going to race again, but I guess it's, it's less about race. But I've just seen differences in the way that people are treated and also project managers who like who, who might look at people from different backgrounds and be like, oh, well, I don't know how to communicate with them because I've never been in that situation or I'm not from that background. It's like, oh, just talk to them as you talk to everyone else. You know, everyone's the same, really. So I think that um, maybe just people educating themselves a bit more and just looking at people a bit more equally would definitely benefit. Yeah. What do you think... The industry, um, our listeners, we, uh, you know, could, can learn from, from your experiences. There's anything that can be learned from my experiences, just, just because someone's from a certain place or has a certain background doesn't mean that they're any less capable. And, you know, we shouldn't underestimate people based on, on where they come from because, you know, they may end up surprising you. And actually, that person who's, who's had a lot harder life is, is probably going to work a lot harder than that person who's had everything handed to them on a plate because they've got that hunger in them, you know. So perhaps companies should start really looking at how they can try and use that hunger in, in those type of people to their benefit. Mm. And it's interesting the way you entered, right? You, you just sort of, you were really, um, you know, can do, you just turned up, you were like, yeah, you had your CV ready. They didn't look at it, right? But they, but you had it ready and you were just happened to be in a position where you, you, you approached Indiefield and they were open to you joining. How do you think others, right? Because you mentioned as well, you know, uh, family, friends, that imposter syndrome issue. Like, how could we encourage more people from more diverse backgrounds to enter the industry, would you say? Or what would make it easier? Or what could we learn from your experiences that could be helpful in that regard? I mean, I'd say, you know, just trying to, to open our minds a little bit to, to the experience of what other people from, from different backgrounds is actually like. I mean, as well as bringing other people from other backgrounds into the industry, should also try and keep the people from different backgrounds in the industry, you know, because a lot of the time we have our, our token one or two people who are from different backgrounds and we just get along with the culture that's there already rather than, you know, really looking into and speaking to them and actively listening to them about, you know, what it's like, their experiences, the struggles that they've gone through in order to get where they are and not to say that we have to do anything about it, it's just to try and understand them a little bit more so that we can then make that culture a bit more conducive to them so that they can feel comfortable and want to stay. And also looking at the senior leadership in a lot of these places, you know, people recruit people that resemble themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you take a look, at, I'll use government for an example. I know um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, he gave a really good analogy. He was like, when you look at the industries of government, all of the people that are on these benches, all you see is that they come from law, 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 business, law, law. Like, there's, there's no scientists, there's no construction workers, there's no, and the rest of the life is, mm -hmm. is not there. And then we wonder why they're all sort of thinking in the same way and just doing things for one specific demographic of uh, people, you know. So it's, it's a similar thing with, with the sort of senior leadership teams in, in companies. We have to look at it and say, okay, if all of your leadership team are old, white, middle-class men, then 
can you expect there to be a real culture of diversity in, in the company? It, it starts from the top. So, you know, I think that we need to start to, companies should aim to hire top talent from more diverse backgrounds, whether that's race, whether that's financial, whether that's experience, you name it. Put them in positions of leadership so that they can then recruit and, and build the culture that reflects themselves because that's what people do anyway. Agreed. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I like that. Okay, cool. And so uh, that was kind of, you kind of answered my next question really that was about what employers could do. Is there anything you think industry bodies like, I don't know, MRS, AQR, bodies like that, is there anything they could do to try and support change in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's hundreds of different initiatives that could be put in place. I mean, myself and I'm working with a team of different research professionals from, from ethnic minority backgrounds. We're working to create an organization that highlights the, the BAME experience in our sector and provides, you know, mentoring and facilities for up-and-coming people in our industry who, who look like us and, and actually try to encourage more people from ethnic minority backgrounds to, you know, come and try a career in research. You know, we're looking to launch this real soon. We've got websites, we've got forum on there that, you know, people will be able to discuss issues they might be facing. That's just one initiative for you know, people from ethnic minorities. We're talking about people from lower income, there's disabilities, there's so many different things that we can be looking at and encouraging people from those walks of life to come into the industry, you know, designing roles that might fit them perfectly. Or, you know, even we're talking, you know, we, we might be able to find a way, programs that we can say, okay, young kids who might have been kicked out of school like me or might have had a, a rough upbringing, maybe market research can be your tool to help turn your life around, you know, maybe ex-prisoners, you can try and include these people in ways, obviously, it has to be thought out, but there's so many different initiatives that we can be thinking of when we talk about inclusion. So, I mean, I don't think I've got all the answers. I just think that there's a ton of bright people out there that the industry is probably missing out on because they don't fit that mould that we're used to. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. And I love some of your ideas there. And definitely send me a link to the website whenever it's launched so I can include that yeah. as well in um, in the podcast uh, information so people can check that out because uh, I think that's yeah. an important... Well, we're, we're looking to launch in, in the next two weeks. That's the goal anyway, the next two weeks. And, you know, we've we've already signed up a handful of mentors who are all senior level professionals in the research industry who have agreed to give up some of their time to support some up-and-coming fame professionals. And what we're really going to try and do is, because it's an important cause, it's, it's a conversation that really hasn't been happening for a long time. And I think now, recently, with this situation that's happening in America, I think more ears are, have been, you know, pricked up to sort of discrimination. But, you know, it's something that's been needing to happen for a very long time. So, so we've been working on it for a while, and we're going to try our best to do what we can. But I think that more of us from all different walks of life need to just think what we can do not necessarily about race, it's not necessarily about income, it could be about all different types of diversity, you know. Agreed, and it's really positive to hear that you're working on that, so, so yeah, I'm really happy to hear that. And so, so that was kind of employers, industry bodies, that kind of thing. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about everyday work lives, what we could do to engender more inclusion, just everyday practices. Is there anything we could sort of tangibly, someone listening to this, that they could take away to go, okay, that's something, you know, I can reflect upon or, or just do in my everyday work yeah, life. I think, I mean, we touched on it earlier, but I think just actively listening, asking questions, you know, and going beyond the mask that people might be putting up, finding out about what their life really is like. You know, we can do things, I don't know, culturally, we can 
have to celebrate holidays that are not necessarily British holidays, but I, I don't know, to be honest. There's so many different things that can be done. But yeah, I, I think it really all starts with just being a bit more open and listening to people and not just assuming that they are the way that you are or they think the way that you think. Great. I think that's super tangible. <laughs> so hopefully that's useful for, for anyone listening. And what advice would you give to somebody with a similar background to you starting their career in market research today? Be yourself, but be professional. Uh, if you come from a similar background to me, then I've got a lot of friends who that sort of way of speaking and acting and behaving is the only thing that they know. I think that it's really important that you can diversify according to the situation. So be yourself, but be professional. Work hard. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something. If you don't know how to do it right now, you can learn it. I mean, we're, we're in the age of Google and YouTube. Like I can count several times in my career that I've been given a task and I've had no idea what I'm actually supposed to do. But I've just said, I could probably do this. Yeah, I'll give it a try. And then spent a few hours on Google, YouTube, learning as I went along and, you know, managed to do it. I think there's a lot to be said about learning on the job and just having the confidence to, to give it your best shot. And I think that those are the people that really succeed in life because they make the most of whatever comes their way while the, while others are just, you know, waiting for the perfect thing that suits them and it, it never comes and they never progress. Good advice. I mean, yeah. Other than that, just work hard, just try your best, be open, be happy, be friendly to people, be good to people. Don't make any enemies, don't burn any bridges. There's really no need to be burning any bridges. Rather make allies than enemies. Always useful. <laughs> good advice for anyone yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what are your hopes for the future of the industry when it comes to these well, issues particularly? My hopes, yeah, I, I hope that we all get to, to sit together and do a bit of kumbaya, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's, there's good initiatives. I think that there's great people working on these things. I'd love to see a bit more urgency, but I think that we're having the conversations now, so, so it's great and it's progress. And we just keep on going and keep on uh, trying to make these changes and you know, we're well on the right track. Tell me about the urgency Is that you feel that's lacking. Uh, uh, I won't name any names. I'll just say that I've had certain conversations with people about certain things and it's, it's been, you know, yeah, yeah, we're working on it and six months later we're still working on it mm. a year later we're still working on it I just think that you know if it was a if it was a crisis response like what happened with COVID mm-hmm. you know people were moving around the furniture very quickly in response to that so you know maybe it's, it needs to be treated a bit more like a, a serious issue rather mm-hmm. than just and nice to have that we're working on. That's interesting, um, and it reflects some of the conversations I've also had, both with people in the industry from non-diverse backgrounds and people in the industry from diverse backgrounds who have also kind of said, yeah, uh, people sort of say that they're interested or, you know, it's important, but not much actually happens. Um, yeah. What do you think, what needs to change? How could how could we, how could that change? I mean, and I also, well, by the way, I don't expect you to have all the answers here by any means. Um, I definitely don't. I definitely don't. And I don't expect anyone else to. But what, in an ideal scenario, what, what, what would happen? Well, look, I don't, I don't want there to have to be tragedy in order for mm. people to to actually get up and move. Like this this thing that's happening in America right now mm. with George Floyd and that, it shouldn't take that for all these companies to suddenly acknowledge that racism exists and we need to do something about it and for everyone to start putting black squares up. You know, this thing has been going on for hun- like decades and decades, hundreds of years. Yeah. So we don't need to wait for 
for tragedies in order for us to actually make something about it and make it urgent. I don't know. I'm not. I think that we're on the right track because we're having the discussion, and that's you know that's great. And people like you are you know doing things like this amazing podcast, and we're putting it out there, and it's great. But yeah, I don't know how to create the urgency. I sure as hell don't want it to be tragedy, tragedy in order to create the urgency. But people need to to know that this is important. It's yeah. something that you know we should do something about. Agreed. And it'll be interesting to see actually what the response is coming out of this. Obviously, this is not the way anyone would want this to, to become an urgent issue, as you say. Mm. But I'm kind of, it's interesting actually looking on, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter and seeing who is even saying anything about it. Yeah, I'm certainly more happy that people are saying something than nothing. Mm. And when it first came, that when it first happened, there seemed to be a radio silence. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really bizarre. And now, this week, everyone, you know, saying something. And, and it's great. I'm, I'm really happy about that. And I think that in, in every single movement, you're going to have some people who are really for the cause and some people who are kind of jumping on the bandwagon. I don't really mind that too much because they make up the numbers. As long as they're making the noise, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the same time, I don't want to just be forgotten in two weeks either. Yeah. It's a similar thing. It's a similar thing with, with diversity. You know, it's, I don't want it to have to be a crisis, but some somewhere down the line, we all need to wake up and say, you know, this is actually a problem. Agreed. And I think, yeah, interestingly, when it comes to business, ultimately, it's about the bottom line. Often, um, as much as as, yeah. as you want to dress it up. And for me, and part of the reason I think this is an urgent issue to address, it is about the bottom line, right? Because we can't deliver our best work if we're not a diverse group of industry peers, Very right? True. We can't. Very true. We're leaving a lot of money on the table there. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree very much. Yeah. Um, you know, if, I think if we had more diverse people thinking of different things, there's, there's so much more that could be made. So yeah, I mean, for those people who, who it's less of a cultural issue, less of an emotional issue, and more of a financial issue, it, it's there too. Agreed. Cool. Well, we are sort of near the end of our hour together. It was really fun. Thank you so much. The thing that I'm going to end on uh, with everybody is I asked everyone, each of my guests, to choose a song that sort of encapsulates their experiences. Before I, I kind of introduce the song or, or play an excerpt of the song at the end, tell me what song you chose and tell me why, what it is, what, what, <laughs> what the message is. So I chose The Fire by The Roots. They're one of my favorite hip-hop bands, and um, the message behind it is it's that fire in your belly. I think that it really encapsulates, you know, you could use it in sports, you can use it for business. It's just about ambition and not letting background or where you've been from, you know, hold you back. Because that, I think, is the key difference between successful people and and unsuccessful people. Now, unsuccessful people make excuses and and use their setbacks as reasons why they never made it. And successful people use their setbacks as advantages and fuel to push them forward to make it. So, yeah, I thought that was quite inspiring and um, definitely a tune that I listen to when I need a bit of a, a boost. Great song choice. That's brilliant. That's it. That's everything. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Ella.
Since this episode was recorded, The Color of Research officially launched, and you can find out more at www.colorofresearch.org. Thank you for listening, and join me next week when I'll be speaking to Rajdeep Chana, Business Development Manager at Lucid.